There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Thanks for attending our presentation today. Normally, we'd see many faces in an audience at a venue, maybe a swanky restaurant or something like that. But of course, today is not like that as we're presenting virtually as we have been for the last two years. Although we have started to have in-person meetings again, which is nice to do. It's nice to see people but we have not been so bold as to host larger events in person. And that will change over time. But it's because of current issues that we decided to host an event focused on the importance of tending to your financial decisions that we're calling spring cleaning. The stock and bond market results from January to today have had a lot of people asking questions about their finances, their investments, and ultimately asking if they're gonna be okay. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Colin Andrews, and I am a portfolio manager and senior wealth advisor with the CM Group. The CM Group has been in existence for almost 40 years. And in that time, we've been through many different market cycles and have helped many people accomplish financial goals linked to things like retirement, estate planning, education funding, and other forms of goals-based planning. Now, just a couple of housekeeping items to attend to before we get into the presentation. There is an option to ask questions during the presentation. The questions will be managed by our organizer and we will answer them as best we can and when we can. If we don't get to your question during the presentation, we will email you back a response to your specific question. Secondly, technology is great when it works and I assume that today is going to go without a hitch. The Wi-Fi is going to be strong, everything's going to work. However, if you're having any technical issues during the presentation, Rest assured that it is being recorded. It will be available for viewing at a later time or date that works for you. So usually I would also take this time to tell people where things like the washrooms are located or the food and beverage that's available. But again, I assume that given this digital format, you're kind of on your own for that. Which reminds me, you can see me and the presentation. However, I cannot see you and all attendees cannot see each other or even know who else is is on the webinar today. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy the presentation. So now let's get into it. Today we're gonna to talk about facts and have a little fun. This will not be a chart-heavy presentation as that's just not required. There will not be a test at the end of the presentation and the focus of this presentation isn't on charts. It is on what works to improve your financial life. Looking at what areas you can improve on to improve your chances of achieving the goals that are relevant to you through spring cleaning. So the way that we are is based on the aggregation of all of the decisions that we have made. Our health is based on each decision that we make, such as, should I eat that chocolate cake? Should I stay up late and get up early? Should I brush and floss my teeth? Each time we make a small decision, it doesn't seem like much at the time, but if you aggregate them, that is to say, if you add them up, they can lead to massive results, good and bad, based on the decisions that we're making at the time. For example, 
Eating a piece of chocolate cake won't do too, won't do much. Eating a whole chocolate cake every day, well, it probably leads to results that we might not want. The same is true in our financial being. If we choose to spend our money on one-off items infrequently, then perhaps it's not such a big deal. But if we choose to spend our money on those items many times a day, a week, a month, a year, it can lead to larger consequences down the road. The extreme example of this that we run into is when we meet people that have not saved anything but want to talk about their upcoming retirement next year versus meeting people who put away a little bit each month into a saving strategy and had that money invested over many years through many different cycles. Chances are the second person will be much better off financially because of their aggregated financial habits. I'm going to recommend a book to those on this webinar. You'll notice the top of this slide, it says Aggregation of Marginal Gains. The book is called Atomic Habits. It's written by James Clear. In the book, he talks about being 1% better every day. That if you do that, you're something like 30% better at the end of the year. It is the layering or stacking of those decisions that leads to the most drastic results. So to help people down that path today, we're going to look at a couple of general spring cleaning items for your finances and then get into spring cleaning your investment portfolio. We're going to start with the budget. This is the spring cleaning portion. A budget is looking at your cash flow. Ideally, there's more money coming in than going out. It will also list your assets and liabilities. The budget is always the starting point of planning. It helps you in your current financial situation and allows us to determine where we can make changes to meet our goals. A budget can be broken into a few different items. Fixed expenses, variable expenses, mandatory or non-discretionary expenses, and discretionary expenses. So fixed expenses are just what they sound like. They're ongoing costs that don't change in amount or frequency. They might be weekly, monthly, or annual payments, but they're pretty easy to budget for because they're fixed. They can be both discretionary or mandatory payments. Variable expenses, well, the amounts change or they may change every payment, which makes them a little tougher to budget for. An example of this might be your monthly utility bills, which cost less in September than they do in July because in July you're running your air conditioning unit. They cost less in September than they do in January because in January you're running your heat. These can also be mandatory or discretionary. Mandatory expenses are what must be paid in order to maintain a minimum standard of living. Examples of this might be mortgage or rent payments, utilities, groceries. These are all examples of non-discretionary expenses. We'd also maybe include savings in this category. Discretionary expenses, well, we usually determine discretionary expenses by asking, is this a want or a need? This, of course, can vary from person to person, and it can even vary within the same household. In today's day and age, it's easy to sign up for things like subscription services. They're all around us, and sometimes we don't know that when we signed up for a free trial, a payment kicks in if we don't opt out before the trial ends. It's happened to me. The companies that are selling us these subscriptions know what buttons to press to get us to pay. So here's an example of subscription creep. At our house, we have cable TV, like a lot of people. But in order to watch sports, I needed to upgrade our cable package. Not a big deal. Only a few extra dollars per month. But then there are shows on, on things like Netflix that people in our house want to watch. Well, we need a Netflix subscription. 
again, on its own, not a big deal. It's about $16 or $17 a month. But some people in our household also want to watch things on Amazon Prime, which is another 6 or $7 a month. And my kids, well, they often want to watch things on Disney Plus, which is another $9 a month. When I start to aggregate the cost of these streaming services, it becomes a much larger number. I mean, in this example, now I'm up to $200 a month or so for cable, internet, and subscription services. And this doesn't include any movies rented or downloaded. I guess that's the same thing. But the number starts to become a real number. So you start to question, is it worth it? And I know I'm going to sound kind of old here, but I remember growing up with three TV channels and one of them was in French and we did not speak French in our household. Quite a bit different. What about our utility costs? As mentioned in the previous slide, do we opt for a variable plan for our utilities or do we choose a fixed rate plan? I'm not here to give you the answer to that one. I'm just simply asking you to be aware of those incremental costs. Greg Kraminski on our team, who many people on this broadcast will know, likes to use the term creeping incrementalism to describe this. I think that it's a great way of looking at it. Those one-off costs are not much on their own, but they start to add up when you add them together. They become a real number. We haven't talked about things like food. We live in a day and age where we can order groceries. We can order meal kits from companies like HelloFresh and others, Fresh Prep. Or if we don't feel like cooking, we can go to skip the dishes and we can just order from a local restaurant or Uber Eats. These are not necessities. These are nice to have services. So the question is, are you budgeting for things like this? Do you consider them when you're looking at your monthly budget? And again, it's just a question to ask yourself. Because the price of goods has gone up a lot in the last year. I'm sure everybody's aware of that. There are many contributing factors to that but let's look at how goods are priced. Let's assume that for any good, there's a demand for it, as represented by an aggregate demand curve. Now that demand might be large, it might be small, it depends on the good that we're talking about, but the supply of that good and where it intersects with the demand of that good is how we get pricing. That's the price per quantity. It's basically economics 101. But let's see what happens when the supply of that good shrinks, which has happened in the last, I don't know, the last year or two. The supply curve moves up and to the left. And where it intersects with the aggregate demand curve is where the new price is set. This is called inflation. Price goes up, quantity goes down. If demand stays constant or even grows and supply shrinks, then the price of that item is going to continue to go up. Now, the good news is that all of those suppliers out there see the sales that they are missing out on by not having enough supply. So they work really hard to fill that gap. Perhaps new suppliers come into the market or existing suppliers increase their output. Eventually, there's enough supply to go around. The supply curve moves back down to the right and the price comes back down. But that takes time. You know, people use the word transitory. Transitory could mean a few weeks, a few months, a few years, but it is transitory. Central banks only have two levers to pull when it comes to dealing with inflation. That is controlling interest rates and what is called open market operations. By raising interest rate, costs go up and it's thought that the demand will fall. This eventually brings prices back down. This is essentially called monetary policy and it is effective, but it can take some time to work. Now, in the interest of time, I'm not going to get into open market operations today. I do like talking about it. So if you ever want to chat about what that is, let me know. Let's talk about those silent killers. That is 
taxes, fees, and expenses. There isn't much we can do about taxes. I suppose you could try to not pay them, but you might not like the outcome that this brings from a legal perspective. So if we have to pay taxes and we essentially are using after-tax dollars to pay tax on items we purchase, to which the seller is getting taxed, which makes me dizzy thinking about it, we must do our best to reduce the tax burden. So what can we do? Well, if you filed your taxes, you received your notice of assessment. If so, it'll point out if you have any unused RRSP room or TFSA contribution room. Can you use that RRSP room to reduce your taxable income? Can you top up your tax-free savings account to create a tax-free income stream or tax-free growth rate? Have you reviewed and updated any monthly contributions that you're making to registered retirement savings plans or tax-free savings accounts? Are you contributing enough to adjust your taxes payable, maybe taking you into a lower tax bracket? Do you have any capital losses or gains that you can crystallize now and use for refiling going back three years or, or going into indefinite years in the future? A great example of a housekeeping item that we've been doing recently is selling some items with capital losses. To do this, we're selling things like a mutual fund that shows a capital loss currently based on what's happened from January to today. But we're reinvesting the proceeds into an exchange traded fund of the same investment solution. Now you haven't gotten out of the market, but you've created a capital loss that you can use in the future. Just an example of a, a minor housekeeping item that you can do. An item that tends to get overlooked by many is estate planning. I mean, when was the last time you reviewed or updated your will? What about your personal directives and power of attorney? These are really important documents. They provide a blueprint to your heirs of how you want your estate to be distributed. Who's your executor? Is that person older or the same age as you? Do they have any health issues that might have them predecease you? If so, do you have an alternate executor named? I mean, not too many people like to talk about death and dying, but if you don't clean it up now, your family will be cleaned up later and it might not go so well for them. Speaking of family, have there been any births or deaths, uh, divorces, health issues, all important stuff to tend to. And we would recommend that you deal with a professional when it comes to your estate plan. Speaking of planning, this whole presentation is based on the idea of having a financial plan. So the question is, when was your financial plan last updated? Have there been any major life changes since then? Any large purchases or sales of items such as property or anything? What about your employment? Has that changed in the past couple of years? I know that uh, some people that we deal with were full-time employees a few years ago and they're now contracting. And there's consequences to that change. Maybe to adjust things like a pension plan. Do you have a pension plan still? Is it a defined contribution plan or is it a defined benefit plan? Those are very different things. Have you picked up an expensive hobby during any of the numerous COVID lockdowns? Again, not judging, just asking and asking you to ask yourself, where are you spending your money? So the items we reviewed up to now are general items to review to sort of clean things up. If you're feeling overwhelmed with items such as these, don't be. Working with a professional can help remove the stress of ensuring that you're making good decisions and you're on the right path to whatever it is that you want to accomplish. But we're not done yet. We're going to get into something that we call it 10 things to do to clean up your investment portfolio. So number one, embrace market pricing. With each trade, buyers and sellers bring new information to the market, which 
is how prices are set. No one knows what the next bit of new information will be. The future is forever uncertain, but prices adjust accordingly and they adjust quickly. This doesn't mean that a price is always right. There's no way to prove that. But investors can accept the market price as the best estimate of actual value. If you don't believe that market prices are good estimates, if you believe that the market has it priced wrong, well, then you're pitting your beliefs and hunches against the collective knowledge of all market participants. Number two, don't try to outguess the market. Many fund managers believe they can identify mispriced securities and convert that knowledge into higher returns. But fair market pricing works against such efforts, as indicated by the large proportion of mutual funds that have underperformed their benchmarks. In the chart I'm showing here, it's showing a 20-year period. The blue one at the top would be equity funds or stock market funds. And this is US data. So in 2001, there were 2,903 stock market mutual funds in the US. By the end of the time period, the end of 2020, only 41% of those funds actually continued to be in existence. And only 19% of the 2,903 funds actually outperformed their benchmark. In the fixed income market, it's the same story. The beginning of the period, there were 1,779 bond mutual funds in the marketplace. By the end of the time period, only 45% continued to be in existence. And only 11% of the original almost 1,800 funds actually outperformed their benchmark. Number three, resist chasing past performance. So some investors may resort to using track records as a guide to selecting funds. Like in the last slide, you might say, well, if only I had invested with the 19% of fund managers that outperformed the market, I'd be much further ahead. You know, your reasoning that a manager's past success is likely to continue in the future. I'm going to tell you this assumption doesn't pay off regularly. The research offers strong evidence to the contrary. This exhibit shows that among equity funds ranked in the top quartile, so the top 25% performing funds on the previous five-year returns, only 21% of those fund managers continued to be top quartile, quartile in the following five-year period. In the bond market, only 30% of the original top 25% continued to be top quartile in the next five-year period. Stock and bond returns contain a lot of noise and impressive track records may often result from good luck. The assumption that strong past performance will continue often proves faulty, leaving many investors disappointed. Number four, let markets work for you. Most people look to the financial markets as their main investment avenue. And the good news is that the capital markets have rewarded long-term investors. The markets represent capitalism at work in the economy. And historically, free markets have provided long-term returns that have offset inflation, even today's inflation rate. Now, this is documented in the growth of wealth, this graph, which shows monthly performance of various indices and inflation since 1985. These indices represent different areas of global equity and bond markets. The data illustrates the beneficial role of stocks in creating wealth over time. T-bills or treasury bills have barely covered inflation in that time period. Well, longer term bonds have outperformed inflation, but at a lower amount. Global stock returns have far exceeded inflation, 
and significantly outperformed government bonds. Now keep in mind that there's risk and uncertainty in the markets. Historical results may not be repeated in the future, but they certainly can rhyme. Nevertheless, the market is constantly pricing securities to reflect a positive expected return going forward. Otherwise, let's face it, people just would not invest their capital. So let's look at the growth of a dollar going back to 1971, 50 years of data. If in 1971 you came in to see the CM group and you said, look, I got no appetite for risk and I just want to ensure that I don't lose any money. Well, the advice would be to invest in something like U.S. Treasury bills. These are known as the risk-free rate in finance. Over that 50 years, your $1 would have grown to $9. But if in 1971 you said, look, I have 50 years ahead of me before I need to start pulling this money out or my family needs some money or whatever the case might be, well, you could have invested in the S&P 500. And that $1 would have grown to $176. This is a significant difference in outcomes. Number five, consider the drivers of return. What the last slide showed us is what we call the equity premium. That being that expected returns for equities are higher than for bonds over long periods of time. Well, what about some other premiums? Rather than viewing the market universe in terms of individual stocks and bonds, investors should define the market along the dimensions of expected returns to identify broader areas or groups that have similar relevant characteristics. Now, this approach relies on academic research and internal testing to identify these dimensions or these factors or these premiums, which point to differences in expected returns. In the equity market, the dimensions are size, which is small companies versus large companies, relative price, which is value stocks versus growth stocks, and profitability or corporate profitability, being high, highly profitable corporations versus low profitability corporations. In the fixed income market, these dimensions are term, credit, and currency. The return differences between stocks and bonds can be considerably large as demonstrated in the last slide as can the difference among a group of stocks or bonds. So to be considered a dimension, a factor, a premium, whatever you want to call it, it has to meet some criteria. It must be sensible. It has to be backed by data over time and across markets. It has to be cost effective to capture in diversified portfolios. In a dimensions or factor-based approach, capturing returns does not involve predicting which stocks, bonds, or market areas are going to outperform in the future. Rather, the goal is to hold well-diversified portfolios that emphasize dimensions of higher expected returns, controlling costs, and have a low turnover. So if we carry on that discussion about the growth of a dollar, and what we showed in our historical data was that $1 invested in the S&P 500, which is the largest companies that trade in the US market, grew to $176, what about the different size of companies? I mean, they're not all large companies that trade in the market. There's large companies, mid-sized companies, small companies, and there's a difference in return characteristics between large companies and small companies. So in that same time period of 1971 to 2020, if you'd invested that $1 in small companies instead of large companies, it would have grown to $451. This is called the size premium. So if we know that the largest companies grew to $176, 
And we know that small companies, $1 investment grew to $451. What about the price premium? This is sometimes called value investing. Well, if we tilted our investments to small company value stocks, so the bottom left quadrant, that same $1 grew to $1,083. So we went from $9 in T-bills to $176 in the largest companies to $451 in small companies and ultimately $1,083 in small company value stocks. This is why the investment solutions that we offer clients have a small cap value tilt incorporated into them. It's not because we don't believe in big companies. It's just that we believe in the factors of return and we cannot ignore the size and price premiums that come into play. Number six, practice smart diversification. So many Canadians concentrate their investment in their home stock market. This is called home country bias. And if we were giving this presentation in Australia, it'd be many Australians concentrate their investment in their home stock market. If we're giving it in the US, it would be many US citizens concentrate their investment in their home stock market. It's pretty normal. But in Canada, Canadians tend to choose Canadian stocks and mutual funds, or they use several brokers who focus on Canadian equity investing and consider their portfolios diversified, in some cases only holding a small group of securities. Yet from a global perspective, limiting one's investment universe to one stock market is a concentrated strategy with possible risk and return implications. So what this slide shows is that if you had concentrated your portfolio in the TSX, the Canadian Composite Index, over the time period, you would have had an annualized return of 8.44% and a measure of volatility or a measure of risk of 14.19%. But instead, if you had held 10 equally weighted asset classes as represented by corresponding indices in the Canadian, US, and international markets, over this period, your rate of return would have gone up to 9.67% and your volatility measure would have dropped to 11.79%. So diversification should not be defined by how many stocks or funds an investor owns or how many brokers one uses. A diversified portfolio should be structured to hold multiple asset classes that represent different market areas across the world. So we call this the get rich versus lose everything portfolio. This is quite common in Calgary, by the way. Over the years, we've met many investors that own maybe a few oil stocks, maybe a few gas stocks, maybe a combination of eight oil and gas stocks to be diversified. This is not diversification. If you invested in those eight companies, and it's just an example, and you put all of your wealth into those companies, what is the range of outcomes? Well, you could absolutely get rich if all of those companies do really well, but what if they don't? What if a few of them fail or half of them fail or more? Then you absolutely could lose everything. So we would advise investors that if you want to own those eight companies, then do so, but own them in a broader basket, own them in a diversified basket of companies, limiting the range of outcomes from get rich to lose everything to something in between. Number seven, remember we're only doing up to 10, so we're almost there. Number seven is avoid market timing. Even with a globally diversified portfolio, market movements can tempt investors to switch asset classes based on predictions of future performance. I run into this question all the time right now. 
with the stock market being in a negative return year to date, the bond market being in a negative return year to date, quite often investors are saying, should we be doing something different? The answer is no. This slide features annual ranked performance of major asset classes in the Canadian, US and international markets over the past 15 years. The asset classes are represented by corresponding market indices. It looks like a quilt, it looks like a patchwork quilt. The patchwork dispersion of colors shows that the relative performance of asset classes is unpredictable across periods. Investors who follow a structured diversified approach are actually well positioned to seek returns whenever and wherever they occur. Diversification also reduces the risk of being heavily invested in an underperforming asset group in any given year. Number eight, manage your emotions. The 2008-2009 global market downturn, otherwise known as the global financial crisis or the global credit crisis, offers an example of how the cycle of fear and greed can drive an investor's reactive decisions. But we've seen other cycles since. We saw March of 2020 when COVID hit and the quick sell-off in the stock market. Some investors fled the market early. So in the example of the global financial crisis, maybe they, they fled the market in early in 2009, just before the rebound began. They locked in their losses and then experienced the stress of watching the markets climb. Staying disciplined through rising and falling markets can pose a challenge, but it's crucial for long-term success. And it's hard, it's really hard. It's hard to watch others make money when we are not. When markets are expensive, we tend to want to buy in for fear of missing out. But markets operate in cycles and ultimately they trade down from a peak to a trough and back to a peak. It's during the time when they trade down to a trough that our biases want us to get out. Sell now is what we feel. Fear is what we feel. But that is bad advice as these markets will go back up. And many people repeat the same pattern over and over. Our advice to you is just don't. Don't even think about it. Stay invested. Number nine, look beyond the headlines. News and financial commentary can influence people's views of investing. Without a strong investment philosophy to guide them, they also may follow the advice of friends, neighbors, family members, especially if the so-called insight promises a fast, easy return. But growing wealth has no shortcuts. Success requires a solid investment approach, a long-term perspective, and discipline to stay the course. These headlines are not actionable advice items. We would call them entertainment advice. You are not going to make changes to your portfolio based on seeing a headline that says something about the looming recession or housing market boom. Number 10, the final slide in our presentation today, actually, in the final of the, the 10 steps to your investment portfolio spring cleaning. Focus on what you can control. To have a better investment experience, people should focus on the things they can control. It starts, and they're listed out here, with having an advisor create an investment plan based on market principles, informed by financial science and tailored to meet specific needs and goals. Along the way, an advisor can help clients focus on actions that add investment value, such as managing expenses and portfolio turnover while maintaining broad diversification. Equally important, an advisor can provide knowledge and encouragement, almost be a cheerleader, to help investors stay disciplined through various market conditions. 
I've had a lot of calls in the last few months from people that said, I'm not worried, but, which indicates to me that they are actually worried. And it is okay to feel that worry. It's okay to feel that fear. It's not okay to make a change to your investment strategy based on what you see today. So maintain that diversification. Diversify globally. Stay disciplined through market dips and swings. Focus on things like asset location, not just asset allocation. So have the right investments in the right taxable accounts and non-taxable accounts. And do regular rebalancing. Market timing does not work. In case you didn't hear me, market timing does not work, but regular rebalancing does. Having a regular rebalancing strategy means that at various times throughout the year, you're selling securities that have gone up in value and buying securities that have gone down in value, which simply increases your expected rate of return going forward. Well, that's the presentation. Thank you so much to everybody for joining us today. I appreciate you taking that time out of your day. And again, this presentation is being recorded and will be available for distribution in the next day or two. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.